Aliens and flying saucers. Aloha, welcome to the 63rd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all forms, from journalism, songwriting, screenwriting, novels, romance, the comics, or whatever I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Leslie Visser, the legendary former Boston Globe writer who in 1976 became the first woman to be handed an NFL beat job. Leslie struggles with not mirroring the stuff of legend. It made it easier for women who entered sports journalism after her to make the transition. Leslie later became known for her on-air work with CBS, ABC, and ESPN. What I really want to talk about is coming up when there were no restrooms for women in the press boxes, when athletes were hitting on you and gifting you with laundry. That's a true story. When you had to work a thousand times harder to get respect. Leslie is also the author of a fascinating new memoir, Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk. She's a trailblazer's trailblazer, and she's right now on Two Riders, Sling and Yang. All right, Leslie, first of all, thank you for doing this very much. And... I want to ask, I want to go right into this because you said something to me five minutes before I started recording that I found fascinating. You said, even though you sort of morphed from newspaper and print to TV, you always, I guess you would say, had the mindset of a writer. Is that, is that correct to say? <laughs> That's actually exactly. What a great word, Jeff. Uh, yes, I, um, when I went from print to TV, from the Boston Globe to CBS, which was probably in the mid-80s, uh, early mid 80s. And uh, I just thought, uh, I have no television experience. I had zero. I mean, I didn't get to go to Albuquerque or Des Moines or where I just went right to the network. And so I said, I'm just going, I'm still going to write, but instead of typing it, my delivery system will be different. I'll be speaking it. But it's basically, I would write it in my head and kind of read off my head <laughs> what I wrote. But, you know, the Globe had a, a great tradition. We, three of us really went, as you know, in print back then, uh, it, you were considered totally different from people who did sports on television. But the Boston Globe, there were three of us all at the same time that they said, hey, we don't want to lose these people. So for a few years, a, a couple of us did both print and TV, which I did in the very beginning, uh, were, of course, the great Will McDonough and the great, equally great Bud Collins. So the Globe had a tradition of saying, OK, we'd rather keep these people and let them do some TV, which eventually all of us transitioned to TV. But it was kind of the Globe was very progressive about it. Right. It's kind of interesting because I remember even when I was... I, I went to college at the University of Delaware, got out in 94, and there was this sort of divide, right? There were people who were going to go into PR or TV, and we'd kind of look at them and be like, ugh, you know, yeah. like, really, ugh, really, <laughs> fine, goodbye. And, and then there were the writers, were the diehard writers, right? And you did this, you made the transition before I graduated college. Was there a sort of, ugh, she's selling out into TV? You know, was, was that mindset around, I'm not saying you had it. But did people kind of view it that way at the time? Yeah, yeah. I remember, of course, I was married to the great Dick Stockton. We're still great friends for 25 years. And I can remember Dick and I met at the sixth game of the 75 World Series. He called Carlton Fisk home run. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the day you meet your wife isn't even the greatest thing that That's happened funny. to you that day? That's good stuff. <laughs> so, but I can remember when I started dating him and, you know, people at the Globe were like, oh, God, a TV person? Right. And then, of course, everybody eventually wanted to get into TV. Right. But, yeah, I mean, uh, 
uh, let's see, I, I stayed at the Globe another, uh, I started in 74, 73, 74, and I stayed there probably 10 years before I went, well, I was part-time for both the Globe and CBS in the beginning, and then maybe in the mid-80s I went full-time to TV. But sure, yeah, there was, because there were, you know, there was that pushback that, oh, TV people can't think for themselves. Right. And, you know, we are the anointed ones. You know, it's funny. I uh, I did a deep dive into Leslie Visser's clips at the Boston Globe. And your name first appears, this is really weird, in a story written by Mike Lupica for the Globe. And I think <laughs> I think he was an intern. And he went, quote unquote, undercover to be a Boston College cheerleader when I think you were a cheerleader at Boston College. And your name comes up in the article. And it's a really fascinating thing because it's like, I don't think reporters and definitely women reporters coming up now understand what you came up in. Because the article, and this is no like, no damnation of Mike Lupica. We, we are all products of our times to a certain degree. It was almost like, oh, look at the, uh, look at the silly quote-unquote girls and they're cheerleading and I'm going to go and I'm going to throw my pom-poms around and ha, ha, ha. You know, like, it's almost like you came along at a time, I just think when women weren't taken seriously in sports, not just in as writers, but in sports, period. It was like, oh, the silliness of it all. They want to be involved in this too. Am I am I overstating that? Uh, well, a couple things there. Um, there were no other women when I started. So right. <laughs> it was either I was silly or I was not silly. You know what's funny about Lupica was my sports editor at BC. Um, imagine, I mean, wow. Lupica and Lenny DeLuca and people you think you're never going to see again. And of course, they've both been in my life, my life for 40 years. But um, yeah, I didn't I can't, I can't remember that article, but I do remember like I might get recognized uh, walking along Newbury Street in Boston and people would say, don't I know you? And I'd say, yes, I cover high school football for the Boston Globe. And they'd say, aren't you a BC cheerleader? And you're like, ah, uh, no, that's <laughs> yeah, the other no. person, right? But I was before Title IX. There were no other athletic things to do. I mean, that's, thank God for Billie Jean beating Bobby Riggs, but um, that it did not affect uh, BC had no women's sports when I went there. So, you know, I wanted to be a sports writer from the time I was 10. So I took it really uh, seriously and I mean, that was another thing to go from nothing to the Boston Globe, which, as you know, your own Sports Illustrated voted those years I was there, not because of me, but it was voted the number one sports section of all time. Right. So here I went. Um, I, I started on a Carnegie Foundation grant in my uh, sophomore, junior year. But really to walk in there and see Murderer's Row, right? Gammons, uh, Will McDonough, Bud Collins, Bob Ryan, Lee Monfill. You know, it was nuts. It was nuts. And I was, um, I remember, God, I go down, you had to go into the library and look at clips all the time then. I mean, way before Google, way before any other, anything else. And I just remember I would, you know, I was not going to be not prepared for any, every, I, I wanted to make every, and you know, anybody who wants to be a writer should consider this, that no assignment is too small. And what I did, and I think it's helpful, is I tried to make every at-bat a quality at-bat. You know, not looking beyond, I was Rick Pitino's beat writer when he was at BU. Mm -hmm. I was 21, he was 22. But I took that as if I were the Celtic beat writer. Wait, forget that, Leslie. I'm looking at an article right now. Uh -huh. January 10th, 1976. You're not going to remember this story. It's ages old, but backgammon is still in. And your lead is, there are at least four reasons why the casual observer 
might not like backgammon. It looks deceptively simple, almost boring. There's no national hero. The game doesn't have distinctive pieces like chess. And even a triumph means only points. Ah, but look closer. Like, I'm not just saying this. You wrote the shit out of the most boring possible <laughs> story ever. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, my editor, who you've known forever, and he was incredibly wonderful. I've had four, since I was always the first woman, I've had four men shape my career. But, of course, the great Vin Storia. And I remember, this is how different the times are. Um, first of all, Vince decided somewhere along the way that I would be their George Plimpton. So I had to go, like, um, orienteering. I had to go, um, kite. what's the thing where you hang on yeah. the... Uh, hang gliding. Hang gliding, right. So I had to do a story on that. Then I remember he sent me on one where you go in the woods for three days with nothing except a compass, uh, orienteering. I mean, he thought, I mean, he also put me on the Patriots beat. But yeah, he, he really decided, and this is how different the times are. There was one year, late 70s, that I got a permanent, and I thought I looked great. I thought my hair looked great. And Vince said to me, I mean, now he'd be fired, but he said to me, you are not going on the road representing the Boston Globe until that grows out. <laughs> wow. Wait, but I have a question for you, Leslie. I'm really fascinated by this because I'm uh, I'm reading your book. I find fascinating. It's like, okay, your sports editor says you can't have that haircut. And there's a you know page 45 where Burke Jones, who was a quarterback of the Baltimore Colts at the time, asked if you would allow him to fly you round trip to Baltimore. And, you know, after you decline, he goes, you're not that great anyway, right? And Jim McMahon says he has something for you at his locker, and it's lingerie in a box. The thing that I find so interesting is the way you write about it and the way you even talk about it. It's almost like, yeah, that happened, and yeah, that happened, and you just kind of have to laugh it off. But I can't imagine being in the moment. Like, I can't imagine the moment Jim McMahon says, here, come to my locker in the Eagles locker room and hands you lingerie. Like, I would want to punch that guy in the freaking face. And I wonder, did you have to build up a guard? Was there, did you want to punch people in the face? Were you, I, I just don't know how you dealt with it. Uh, no, you know what? Um, in, in Boston, everybody uses humor, and I just used humor to deflect. And that helped me until I got back in the hotel room by myself. But, like, even with Burt Jones, he and I are friends now. We've been friends. And he tells it differently. He said, no, you rejected me. You had no interest in me. But um, that's just not true. It was, uh, he said, Would you, can I fly you down to Baltimore? And you remember, well, I don't know if you remember, your listeners remember, the kid was the best-looking yeah. kid in America, right? LSU, real good-looking kid. And and, um, young man. And so when I said, I went into my thing, right? He said, you know, hey, you ever been to Baltimore? I'll send you a shuttle ticket. And I went into this, absolutely not. This is my job. And that's when he sort of brushed my shoulder and said, hey, you're not that great. Because, of course, Miss Alabama was over by his car. Right. But, um, no, I, I always use humor to deflect. And I think that worked for me. I think uh, a lot of times when players, none of my bosses ever hit on me, which is, fantastic right now you know Vince Doria Ted Shaker Sean McManus and Les Moonves who you might have yeah. noticed is in the news yeah. but I never they never were inappropriate with me but of course players were and coaches were and what worked best for me was not to go running to an attorney or HR uh, I would say to the player um, you know they give you the yo baby yo baby and I would I would say to them now your mother didn't teach you to talk like that and it reduced, you know, either then they were 
apologetic because, of course, you don't want to embarrass your mother or they laughed or so I did have to find mechanisms that work for me, but usually humor, humor and people in Boston, as you know, were funny. So it worked for me. But did it, um, I'm just, you know, like I had a, I had a conversation today with a young writer, a woman writer who I'm friends with, and she was talking about what women reporters have to go through today, which is a lot of sort of, uh, shaming on social media, getting hit on on social media. And I feel like today the reaction to that is, Hey, go fuck off. I'm, that's not what I don't do that. That is not, I don't do that. And it almost seems like back when you were coming up, you didn't have that option in a weird way. Yeah. No, uh, you know what I felt? I felt that at the time I was representing all women, which was quite a burden. So I felt like, you know, I I, I know I'll be prepared. Um, What I tell young people and what a brave new world it is out there now. But what I tell young young women is that um, here's the thing. Nobody prepares you. No class in college, nothing you ever thought of. No one prepares you for humiliation. And it is going to happen. And you should spend some time in thought of, okay, in that moment when I'm being humiliated, how do I want to represent my family name, the paper I'm associated with, or the network? Um, So you have to be really prepared for that because you are going to get humiliated. And uh, I don't do Twitter or Facebook. I just think they're cruel. I think think Twitter is 80% cruel and 20% kind. So uh, I, would, I would go 90-10. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But I would say to young people, don't read it because you're not going to like it. They're not on your side and you're not going to feel good about yourself. But when you're in the workplace, you, you must prepare that. I mean, remember, I'll tell you how it's changed in my 40 years. Mm-hmm. Remember last year when Cam Newton humiliated that sure. young woman? And it was a perfect question. What about a route? And remember he said, wow, I can't believe a woman's asking about a route. Well, when I started everybody would have sided with the quarterback. And now everyone, which I was very encouraged by, everyone, Cam was made to apologize. He was censured. And I, I love seeing that. You know, I, I had sometimes a, a brutal go of it. Like I remember doing one story on Dale Murphy, who's beloved. Mm-hmm. But he said, if she comes in the clubhouse, I won't speak to anyone. Which was really brutal. to So how do, you, how do you handle that? Well, I couldn't go in, but you know what? I, I think you would have done the same thing. All the people that we love, George Vesey, Dave Anderson, Tom Boswell, all the ones back, Peter Gammons, all the ones back then stayed outside with me. What, did, uh, what was your reaction when you were given the Patriots beat? And how did you even find out you got it? Do you remember? Yes, I had two of those, which I will share with you. Vince Doria and Dave Smith was our other editor and went on to great editor of the entire Dallas Morning News, great guy. Uh, they they said to me, we're going to make you the first woman on an NFL beat. Are you thrilled? Are you terrified? Are you both? Yes, both. And I remember, I mean, I don't know in our politically sensitive environment, but uh, I had two experiences from the very beginning. Uh, the very first thing Chuck Fairbanks ever said to me, he was the coach then, mm-hmm. ever, I asked him about one of his linebackers, and the very first thing he ever said to me, he looked at me kind of like I was from Mars, and he said, wow, you ought to go to lunch with my daughter. You're about the same age. Oh, my now, God. This, this is the, and by the way, on the credential to cover the Patriots, on the credential, it said, no women or children in the press box. That's crazy. I mean, it was, a, it was a zoo. But I will tell you this, the best people to me were the blacks. And they said, 
that the reason they were, I mean, Sugar Bear, Hamilton, all, all the guys were great to me. I used to watch film with them. And they said it's because they knew what it was like to be the only one. Right. So, um, you know, I had safe pockets because the head coach <laughs> didn't get it. And I tried to understand later that it was new for them, too. You know, I mean, um, I'm sure to Chuck Fairbanks, it was like, huh? Right. But um, so I did. I tried to put that in the mix that, um, hey, this is new for them, too. So, my fa- my uh, favorite thing is that the idea that, like, this were this football it's too complex for your lady brain like it's so you know what i mean like ooh, i don't know if she's going to be able to figure out the run and shoot offense because it's so complex i just think like it's so overrated the intellect that it takes to figure this stuff out i just think it's comical oh i don't know if the women will be able to get this um well, I lot, I watched a lot of film. I rode John Madden's bus with him across the country, and he would run that Redskins counter tray like eight million times until I could diagram it. So I, another thing I try to tell young women is that, hey, look, don't be intimidated because most of the men who'll be your colleagues, they weren't born recognizing a safety blitz. They didn't play in college. They loved it like you do, so they learned it. Right. So um, that's what I, I try to tell them that, you know, I'm pretty certain I, I know quite a bit about football. Big part of your book is you standing in parking lots early in your career covering because you would you could not go into locker rooms and interview. So you, you literally would have to wait in parking lots for the players to come out, correct? Yes. Uh, John Madden said I was stuck in a two-way go because, um, like, if I were waiting for Steve Grogan, mm-hmm. then Terry Bradshaw might leave. So, you know, it wasn't the, the one good thing about it. And this is another thing I counsel young women. The one good thing about it was I had to do 100 percent of the reporting myself. I didn't want the Globe to say a woman couldn't do it. I didn't want the Patriots to say a woman couldn't do it. So uh, now, you know how you go in so many locker rooms and people don't even make eye contact. They just stick their mic in, yeah. you know, to get some sound and then they leave. And uh, I think in some ways, it really sharpened my reporting skills, my interview skills, because I had to do it 100% myself. I, w- I was wondering, actually, when you're first at something, okay, so they don't want you in the locker room. The men don't want you in the locker room. The coaches don't want you in the locker room. Look, this is a place where we change. We're naked. We walk around, towel, showers, blah, blah, blah. At the time, does it at all seem sensible? Not sensible. Do you understand where they're coming from at the time? Or are you like, that's preposterous? I should be allowed to be in there. No, no, I understood it. And you know what? I was so thrilled to have the opportunity. But I remember when it was Paul Tagliabue, I think, who opened up the locker rooms finally, but not until... 80s, right? Yeah, late, late. Uh, After Stern, David Stern did it with the NBA. um, But the NFL didn't have to do anything, right? They've always been the biggest industry in America. But um, I remember when they first opened them up, which I thought was appropriate. They gave the players like a 15-minute cooling off period. Right. And some some teams, like I remember the Rams, they gave them terry cloth towels, or, you know, like to put around with the Velcro around their waist. And you know what? After a while, people just um, bagged it. I mean, they didn't care. It was like they had the 15 minutes, so they could either come out with a towel or get dressed, whatever they wanted to do. I, I remember I, I did have, I don't know if I wrote about this in the book, um, a really embarrassing experience doing a Celtic Washington Bullet playoff game, and uh, the Bullets lost on a 
last second shot. And of course, Bob Ryan went to, in to do the Celtics. So I had the sidebar of doing the bullets. And I walked in there and Kevin Grevy, who since has become a great friend of mine, Kevin Grevy yelled out, oh, nobody said there's going to be a broad in here. Oh, my God. And I was so mortified, Jeff. I was so mortified. I went over to some guy who didn't even play like the 12th man on the team and just pretended I was talking to him. And then Kevin actually came over and said, I'm sorry. Um, the loss was terrible. I, it, you're just unexpected in here. And, you know, may I take you to lunch tomorrow? So, uh, but at the moment, that was when I've said about no one prepares you to be humiliated. Yeah. Like I'm all ready for the people I need to talk to and what I need. And the weird thing was I had loved the Kentucky guards. I love Louis Dampier. I love Kevin Grevy. I love Kyle Macy. So right. it was a real whammy. Did but, you, uh, are you hardened? Like, are you now, are you hardened from humiliation? Does it not affect you in any way? No, no. I, I, I really, um, I'm so blessed. I mean, CBS sent me to the fall of the Berlin Wall. I really have nothing to complain about. Um, one thing I was not prepared for, and it hit, you know, I was young when it hit me, I wasn't prepared for fame in the sense of, you know, as a reporter, like I remember when I first started at the Globe, I heard from the draft board because they couldn't believe Leslie could oh. be a woman writing sports, right? Oh, that's but awesome. at least in the newspaper, you know, I had Peter and Bob and Will and Bud. I had real support there. And it, yes, every city I went to would do a story about the woman covering the NFL. But it's, it was nothing like when I was on Monday Night Football, it was the number one show in America. Right. And um, you know, it just, it was a lot of fame for somebody who, it's a real difference in the world when you go from being the observer to the observed. Mm -hmm. And and I was much more natural being the observer. Right. So that took a while. But no, I have, I mean, I have scar tissue, but it didn't harden my heart. I think you're a better person than I am, I gotta say. You seem more forgiving. Yeah, I was, I was. Like even, even Jim McMahon, he did it in his mind to be funny, you know, not to be cruel. He he thought this would be kind of funny and he gathered the whole team around. Ugh. And and no, but you know what? I, you know, I just said to him, wow, you had to dig through all your penthouse magazines to find this. Oh, that's <laughs> I mean, funny. It was, but I remember, now we all know about Jim. I remember seeing him at one of Dan Marino's black tie events. This was probably 10 years ago. And so we were talking, and I said, Jim, what is wrong with you? And he said, oh, I forgot to put in my teeth. Oh, man, right. <laughs> so, I mean, what a sad... Yeah. Sad. I actually, the best response I've ever heard to a, to a jerk athlete, to a woman, I forgot who it was. It was someone who was covering the Pittsburgh Pirates for the Associated Press, and a naked Dave Parker called her over to his locker and said he should, you know, quote-unquote, suck it. And her response was, Maybe I would if I could find it underneath all that fat. <laughs> yeah, see, I didn't have too um, Catholic guilt to say. Yeah. There, was a, there was a great woman from New York who was covering the Jets, and um, one of the players said, hey, what do you think of this? And she, what's a nice word for it? She said, oh, it looks like your equipment, although she used the word. Yeah. She said, it, lo it looks like your equipment, only smaller. That's awesome. That's really good. <laughs> Which I was, I was, I would never have the guts to say anything like that, but that was pretty cool. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my dad, Stan, who raised me to be a sports writer. So, Dad, who's your favorite football team these days? Oh, that's easy. The Knicks. Really? I love the way they hit that ball. 
How do you feel about LeBron going to the Lakers? It's exciting. Yeah, I knew we could talk sports. But I think he's going to have a problem swimming in all those lakes. Ugh, never mind. I was raised by a sports ignoramus, but that doesn't mean he has to dress like one. The sponsor of this podcast is 503 Sports, the kings of throwback sports merchandise. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Jimmy Smith Birmingham Stallions jersey, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Stan Perlman and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Who's Jimmy Smith? Wait, I want to ask you a question. This is as random as it gets. I have two totally random related to your time with the Patriots. One, There's a piece of legend in my mind, and I don't think you were witness to it because you weren't in the locker room. And it's like journalism legend. 1979, your colleague, Will McDonough, one of the sort of biggest badasses yes. in media, punches yes. Raymond Claiborne of Ray the New England Patriots after a 56-3 loss to the Jets. You know what? I was so mad that, of course, that's when I was out in the parking lots. And I was so mad because all of us at the Globe, it was legend and we couldn't believe it. Now, just to give you or your listeners a little background on Will McDonough, um, we're pretty sure when Will died... Uh, Billy Bulger was the president of the Massachusetts Senate and also the president of Boston University. And Billy Bulger was one of the pallbearers. And we're pretty sure that Whitey Bulger was in disguise in the back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, Will had visited Whitey because Will was from Southie, you know, yeah. and Will and he was tough and he he did play in college. And Will, I mean, that's all I mean, this this actually is true of my career that how lucky was I? I'd go to Wimbledon and say, hi, I'm Leslie Visser. I work with Bud Collins. Oh, what do you need? What do you need? Right. Hi, I'm Les at the World Series. Hi, I'm Leslie Visser. I work with Peter Gammons. Oh, my God, come right in. And then Will McDonough, who everybody was terrified of. Right. But Will, actually, when I got the Patriots beat, Will called Billy Sullivan, then the owner, and he said, we're having a woman on the Patriots beat, and that's that. Wow. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm really sorry I missed that Ray Claiborne. Wait, but did he? Is that true? Did he factually oh, punch yes. Ray Claiborne? Yes. Yes. Claiborne was giving him crap, and he didn't want to hear it. <laughs> so oh, he took care of it. That is so great. And then my Ray. second question is, and I was wondering this, uh, 1978, I don't know if you were there, though, preseason game Oakland Raiders, the Jack Tatum hit on Daryl Stingley. Were you covering I that game? I was. And... Um, Oh, God, it was so terrible. And, of course, they've changed the rules since then. Um, I for have people, wait, for people who don't know, I just want to say, Darryl Stingley was a wide receiver with the Patriots, a really, really good player. And Jack Tatum was a safety with the Raiders, and he hit him in a preseason game, broke his fourth and fifth vertebrae, and he became a quadriplegic. Go ahead. And died young from it. Yep. Yes. And um, I have two thoughts on it. One, that Jack Tatum the way the rules were shaped then, he was within the rules. I mean, what was his book called? They Call Me Assassin. They Call Me Assassin, yeah. Oh, he was a killer. I mean, you just did not. You just, you wanted the out pattern. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, yes, Stingley made the mistake of coming across the middle and really paid a price for it. So my two thoughts on it were, one, I don't know if most people know this, but John Madden, then the coach of the Raiders, he went to the hospital and spent the night with Daryl Stingley. Right which was really profound. And the other thought is, I guess Jack Tatum was so proud that he, I don't think he ever apologized that it happened. I'm not sure on that, but I think he was re reticent, uh, even though 
it was within the rules, but um, I don't think maybe I'm wrong on that. But I don't think he ever apologized. What is it like covering a um, a team when something like that happens? Oh, everybody cried. Everybody it makes me emotional now. Yeah. Um, you know, it was so. Um, you know, we just hadn't, or maybe the older writers had experienced it, but you know, I'd never seen anything like that, and um, that's all anybody, all anybody cared about. They didn't care about the game, the story, anything. You only cared about is Stingley getting good medical care, and when can he come home? And you know, it, it was really a um, profoundly negative experience in my life. Yeah, I bet. I actually wondered you. Um... You've kind of, you know, you've your life has been intertwined with the game of football, uh, your adult life certainly, and now with everything coming out over the past few years, as far as CTE, uh, the physical, the mental damage has done to athletes. Um, I don't want to ask, do you have second thoughts? But do you? I don't know. Do you look back at the guys you covered? Is there a sadness? Is there a? Is it? Is it? Is there something wrong with this game? I don't know. You know, is there something yeah, wrong? Yeah, um, my thoughts on it are I'm really conflicted. I'm really conflicted. I mean, uh, the science, I think, is undeniable. So, I mean, why are they why are they so stressing new helmet rules? Which, by the way, I don't know. What quarterback sneak doesn't lead with his helmet? Yeah. I, I don't know that. So, I think it's going to be very interesting. But really to teach, see what you hit is very meaningful starting in high school all the way up you know they're th- they're I imagine in preseason we saw it the other night they are going to throw a lot of flags till people kind of think they've gotten it right or better but yes it's, it was very it's very sad for me to talk to Jim McMahon or many of the people I covered and I just think uh you know thank God for Chris Nowinski do you know him yeah of course uh, the former Harvard player who now is um, very involved in the CTE research at Boston University. And, you know, at, at first they didn't want to listen to him. But now I, I think everybody is on board. Everybody's on board, you know, unless you don't think Obama came from the United States. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, everybody else is on board with this. I actually thought it was, I was one of a million, but when Trump actually mocked the NFL for being concerned with player safety, I didn't even, I wanted to rip out my hair. I thought there's something wrong here. Like there's something wrong with that. Yeah. He, you know, I mean, we can't, if you're a chronic tweeter, you can't control somebody, but even taking on LeBron the other day, what was that about? What was that about? LeBron James is like one of the most brilliant businessmen, kindest people, putting a thousand kids through college, built a $50 million facility for inner city kids. Did you see what Don Lemon tweeted after it? I did. Yeah. Some people put kids in classrooms. LeBron puts kids in classrooms. Other people put kids in cages. Yeah. I mean, I just think he should just stay away because um, it's not it's it, it's not helping. And the national anthem is a, such a complicated thing now, where it didn't used to be. I, I mean, they, do you know that Kaepernick? Do you know this? That Colin Kaepernick asked Nate Boyer, remember him, the player, of course you do, but Nate Boyer was a Green Beret and Colin Kaepernick asked him, what is an honorable way for me to peacefully protest? And Nate Boyer is the one who said, take a knee. That's what we do when a fellow soldier is fallen. So, I mean, I just said this the other day that having, being a native Bostonian and 
having grown up with Henry David Thoreau, I believe in civil disobedience. Right. I mean, it's been going on for 200 years. So yeah, I, do too. I don't I don't know how we got in this crosshairs. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, let me ask you lastly, you uh, I'm, I'm fascinated in writing processes, right? Even more than content. Like, and you decide to write a memoir. Uh, sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. Was it a quote from your mother, correct? She did. We were 10 years old. I was 10 years old living in Cincinnati. And she said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, at that time, women were really four things. They were nurses, teachers, secretaries, or homemakers. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I want to be a sports writer, you know, which was like saying I want to go to Mars. My job didn't exist. And she looked at me, and, you know, if you're a parent, I you probably are. You can change a child's mind in one sentence. And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And she said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. That's a great quote. That's a yeah, great changed, quote. Great quote. She was a teacher. It changed, you know, it changed my life. It gave me permission to pursue this. Maybe I'd make it. Maybe I wouldn't. But that was my dream. I, I had a passion for sports, the way other kids love music or poetry or jujitsu, you know, whatever it is. But right. Mine, mine was sports, and uh, uh, my writing, I found it really hard. I found it hard to make it look breezy and easy, and I'd be up, you know, 3 o'clock every morning, and what I used for myself, which if you're not on deadline, I, I believe it's, it's an important element, that Hemingway said the secret of writing is rewriting. Mm-hmm. So I actually, when I wrote that book, I would start at the beginning, every time, every time. Uh, where did I miss here? Where can I have continuity? Where could I write it better? So, you know, it was a lot of, lot of almost all-nighters, like before our college tests. Were you using so, a lot of clips? Like, did you have a lot of your old clips out? Did you have uh, videos? Like, how did you actually remember the specifics of events and such? Uh, what helped me was that I've spoken quite a bit. So a lot of those stories, I had to flesh them out. But you know, I, I, I very well, I know the story of Daryl Stingley, and I don't know if I put this in the book, but I also, for television, was there when Mike Utley got hurt, oh, and I had to go off the field, I mean, because, you know, there weren't all these in, many, many rules in place, so I actually, because I knew him, he let me walk off the field when he was on the stretcher, and it was another time I was very emotional. His parents and I were outside. He was in the medical um, being looked at. And we were just kind of hugging each other. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And as you know, he was another one paralyzed. Yeah. So um, so um, most of the book, the reason it took me over and over was because um, I didn't want to come off preachy. I, I wanted it to be almost where you could open it anywhere and get a laugh or hear an anecdote or hear the struggle. And I, I kind of wrote it for anybody who has a dream. I don't care. Obviously, I don't care if you're female or male or black or white, gay or straight, come from another country. Uh, I want you to pursue your dream. Yeah, it's good. You also, one thing you do really well is you um, you call people out without calling people out. And what I mean is <laughs> you come off as honest without coming off as uh, angry, if that makes sense. And maybe you are angry, but you don't come off as – like you don't seem like someone who holds grudges, which is no. a pretty freaking impressive thing. No, I really don't at all. And I mean – This might sound weird, but I I always looked at it like the more women 
the merrier. Like there were a lot of, there are, have been a lot of women over the years that they think there's only one slice of the pie and I'm going to get it. Whereas I always thought, wow, more pieces of the pie. Like here come Jackie McMullen and Sally Jenkins and Chris Brennan. This is the greatest. And I mean, I took out an ad for Andrea Kramer at the Hall of Fame. I'm so thrilled. I was pushing for her for years. I am so excited that she got in the Hall of Fame. So no, I really don't. I don't have anger I'm, because people have taught me things, you know? I mean, who am I to be high and mighty? Right. Let me ask you a final question I always wonder about because you have, you have the TV, uh, you know, goods here. You know, obviously there are tons of women now, you know, thank God, who, who want to go into sports media and have opportunities to go into sports media. If you are a, I don't know, a five foot kind of schlumpy looking, overweight but love sports um, woman who wants to go into sports television. I, I, I'm not trying to be, because I don't want to be Pollyanna I know what you're here. saying. Is no, it, I know exactly what you're saying. Because I don't um, see them. I don't see them. No, you know what? Um, I, the eternal optimist, um, I think that you have seen the pendulum swing back a little bit. I mean, here I am, CBS just re-upped me and I'm 64 years old. Michelle Tafoya is not young. Susie Colbert's not young, but they're great. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're great. And uh, yes, they look great, but it's mostly about their body of work, that they are great. And I tell people this, the people that you think come through to you, the television, honestly, you would like them in person and you would find them credible. Right. Um, what what I, I argue with Chris Brennan about this all the time. What I lament is every woman I hear from now wants to go into TV. And I said, Chris, last year at the NFC championship, I think I saw one woman in the press box. I, I, I really lament. And she says, no, they're going into writing. They're going into writing. I said, well, I just don't see it. Do you see it? You know what's so fascinating? My episode last week on this podcast is Dana O'Neill. I don't know if you know Dana. Oh, yeah, sure. Who's She's great. Fabulous. She's so good. And yeah. um, she told me same exact thing you just said, which I have not. She said, I do not see women covering college basketball for print. I just don't see it. Exactly. No, I think Chris, I mean, and Chris is also, it's like we both swallowed light bulbs, you know, she's, she's even more optimistic than I am. But I really, I mean, print, it, it really, you just can't beat it. You can't beat it for your skills, for the fun that it is. It, it does take you places. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. I mean, uh, the Washington Post, actually, I, I pitched this to CBS and I did a story on it last year. Do you know the Washington Post, the four major sports all have female yep. beat writers? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled. But that's incredibly unusual. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, Leslie, I just want to say before I wrap this up that um, I feel like sometimes we limit praise. I'm like, I think people would look at your career and say, wow, she's really opened it up for women. But I, I think there's a lot more to it, which is to say... Your presence opened, you know, it really, number one, it opens the minds of athletes because nowadays athletes are so accustomed to women. A lot of them, it's not even a thought or a woman sitting down with you to interview. It's not even a thought. I think it's opened. I think it opened it. When I came up at SI, there were women all over covering sports. So it wasn't weird to me coming up at 23, 24 because that barrier was broken down. So I I think there's a lot more to what you've done than just opening it for women. I think you've opened the minds to a lot of people. And I I just think that's a freaking legacy to be pretty proud of. Oh, Jeff, don't be a stranger. Uh, I'll try. (laughs) try Thank you, Jeff. You're great too. I want to thank today's guest, Leslie Visser, for joining me on True Riders Sing and Yang. You can visit Leslie's website at leslievisser.com and buy her new memoir, 
Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk wherever books are sold. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. My upcoming book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is out September and available for pre-order everywhere now. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.